This is the Cigar Snob Podcast. I'm Nick Jimenez. As you might know by now, the cigar industry was dealt a couple of major blows with the recent deaths of Jose Orlando Padron of the Padron Cigars family and Gilberto Oliva Sr. of the Oliva Cigars family. Both men led operations renowned for their quality and consistency, and the impact they made on the world of cigars, especially Nicaraguan cigars, will be felt for a long time. In our last episode, that was episode 8, you heard from some of the people who knew Jose Orlando Padron best. In this episode, we're turning our attention to the life and legacy of Gilberto Oliva Sr. Though he didn't have the same level of personal fame that some of his peers did, the company that Gilberto started is in many ways as consequential as any in cigars today, especially Nicaraguan cigars. It's the name behind celebrated cigars like the Oliva Serie V Melanio, which our magazine and others have named Cigar of the Year and consistently include on lists of the best cigars of the year each year, and trend-setting products like Nub. They also make the Oliva Connecticut Reserve, which is my personal go-to cigar when I want something light, and is often the cigar I think of first when new and novice smokers ask me for recommendations. Just like in our last episode focusing on Jose Orlando Padron, I'll be mostly stepping out of the way here so that you can hear from some of those who were closest to Gilberto Oliva Sr. With that, we'll start with his son, Jose Oliva, who has been at the helm of the Oliva Cigar operation. My earliest uh, memories of him were when he was getting home. We would always obviously know a couple weeks in advance when he was coming home, and there was always that great anticipation of it. And then running to the cab whenever he arrived, there's such vivid memories that sometimes... Sometimes I can picture the car that it was, uh, which is strange because obviously it's in the 70s and these old cars that he would pull up in uh, these cabs. And, and that was that was my first memory. Of course, there's also the memory of the days he had to leave. And uh, my sister and I would, being the youngest, would hide his shoes in, in, in some sort of attempt to thwart his ability to leave that day. I mean, the, the innocence of a child thinking that that would work. <laughs> but... Uh, but the, so, so those are my, my earliest memories, but in interacting with my dad, my dad was, was, he was always a teacher. He was never not on his job, whether it was the job of being a dad or whether it was the job of being in business. He was never, he was never a man that was never not on the job, which obviously, you know, made a big impression on me growing up. My dad was always a uh, always ready to say something to you that was simple yet stayed with you for a long time. I remember, I remember as a child talking about the importance of, uh, the importance of, of, of saving money and of, and of not misspending and whatnot. He said to me one, one day, if you ever feel like you're losing the value of a dollar, change it into pennies and get the weight of a hundred pennies in your hand. And that'll remind you the importance of a dollar. I always thought that was uh, it was simple yet profound. It never left me that you know, we can we can look at things as as if they have no value, but if you just if you transform it into something else, uh, you get a better perspective of it. And and the same is true with uh, in business. You know, growing up, the the cigar business, the the tobacco business, was not very good in the late seventies, early eighties, and and you know we struggled in a lot of ways. And he always made it a point to point out that regardless of whatever struggle you were going through, you, you always did things the right way, that the most important thing was to do things the right way. I mean, these are things that, that you hear as a child and they, uh, and they stick with you. They're things that I find myself telling my children today. As I got a little bit older and I, and I was able to start have, to have 
real conversations with him, I was always taken aback by how many struggles he had been through. This is a man whose childhood basically ended around eight, seven, eight years old. He uh, was running barefoot outside and got a staph infection that almost cost him his leg from the knee down. And he spent a lot of months in a, in a hospital in Havana, which is two hours away from, from his home, by himself as a child uh, in an all-man's hospital. My grandfather, his father, would, would come and see him only on Sunday because the rest of the time he had to work, and obviously it wasn't easy for for a poor farmer to get all the way to the capital. And so that was the earliest of struggles. Uh, then obviously what happened to not just him, but all the families of Cuba with the revolution and then what happened again in Nicaragua with the revolution there. And time and again, he had very, very difficult struggles that would have certainly given anybody the excuse to not have been able to succeed. And I would always, I would always tell him, you know, what was going through your mind during that time? I mean, you know, you must have felt terrible. Uh, it was always amazing to me that he was a very no-nonsense man. He he had no time to think about how terrible it was. The, his thoughts were entirely on moving on to the next thing. Uh, and he would say, you know, you, you don't pay attention to those types of things. You put your faith in God and move on. And that was a major, that was a, that was a major saying of his his entire life. He would say it obviously in Spanish. He would say, "Eso no se hace caso." So anytime that there was a difficult situation. What he would tell you is, a eso no se hace caso. You don't pay any mind to that. And as a, you know, as, as a younger person, you thought, well, that's not an answer. What do you mean? You don't. But as I've grown older, I've, I've come to see the wisdom of uh, what is without remedy should be without regard. It's a legitimate thing. And, you know, honestly, right up until, uh, right up until the time of his passing and uh, having for the first time in my life to go through a situation where I'm picking caskets and making funeral arrangements and, and cemetery arrangements. And, uh, and obviously even, even at the, at, at the funeral, I constantly kept telling myself, you know, what would he say to me if he was here? Uh, you know, it's a, such a difficult time for us. And I feel like, you know, probably in a more tender way, but he probably would have said, I, I no se hace caso. you know, he probably would have, would have said, you know, uh, this is the way things are. He, he was just very matter of fact that way. One time I asked him, I said, Dad, don't you, don't you ever laugh? And he goes, well, of course I laugh. Everybody laughs. And I said, no, I mean like really laugh, like one of these uncontrollable type belly laughs. And he looked at me and he said, well, you know, a man can't go around laughing all day like an idiot. That was his answer to that. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was hilarious. It's, it's ironic. It's made me laugh a thousand times every time I think about it. But that's, that's who he was. You know, this was a man that, that absolutely loved uh, cigars and tobacco, never had a humidor. He, he didn't. He didn't have time uh, for things like this. He, uh, you know, he had whatever cigars he was smoking. They were in his pocket, or they were on the table, or they were. He didn't. He didn't have these types of things. Well, life, you know, we gave him cutters and lighters, and uh, he was very quickly frustrated with. And I guess our generation isn't with the fact that a lot of these things end up not working fairly quickly. He thought that was just silly. He thought it was silly that, that these elaborate contraptions look great, and then they quickly don't work. He was more than happy with a, with a big lighter that, that he knew he could count on. He, he would also just light, he just light the corner of his cigar, which was, which was uh, something that always amazed me. You know, we, we, 
we get into, first of all, we've got all sorts of lighters and cutters and things, and then we light our cigar and we toast the foot and we smell the aroma off of it and we do it. He didn't do any of that. He, he took his cigar, he smelled it before he smoked it, then he lit the corner of the foot and he'd say if it was a good cigar, it'll find its way. And that was that. He was, the, the, the best thing I can say to describe my dad was uh, he was just a no-nonsense person. He's a person that could very quickly get to the crux of the matter. He, he's a person that could understand where the importance in something lied, and he would focus his attention there. The pump and circumstance of things were not something that in any way occupied his mind. Another funny story, one time I was watching one of these auto auctions, a classic auto auction that they put on TV. Him and I had to spend some time in Jacksonville in 2006. He had prostate cancer. And so we had to go up there for treatment. And we stayed a few days up there. And uh, one day there was one of these auto auctions on. And I said, look, Dad, look, that's, uh, they sell these old cars there. And he was, he was kind of interested about it. He says, oh, really? And they, they look to be in great shape. I said, no, you know, these are people that, that restore these cars and then they sell them. I said, look, take, for instance, that car. I don't remember what it was. I said, they're selling that car, you know, for $80,000. And he was taken aback. He said, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Nobody that would spend $80,000 on a car like that should have any money. <laughs> this was, this was, this, this, he was always very terse that way and not, not in a rude way. I mean, there's a legitimacy to him and his, and his thoughts that, which by the way, he lived, I mean, in order, you know, uh, my dad was always fond of, of telling you, you know, how long he had, he preserved the shirt or how long he preserved the jacket or how long, I mean, he, he gave such tremendous value to things. These things were important to him. And, and he spent his whole life teaching. I can't, I mean, the, the very last conversation I remember having with him, it was, it was still him still teaching, still saying, you know, keep your eye out on this. And, uh, you know, beware of these types of things. And it's constantly, this is, this was his major function. And so it's the, the solace at a time like this, when, when he's no longer around and, and the proximity is so close that you think about it daily, many times a day, there is a certain solace now in how terse he was. There's a certain solace in that he wouldn't necessarily look too fondly upon someone becoming consumed by his absence or, or someone he used to always say to me uh, as he was getting near his end, he would say, you know, this is life and, and, uh, and, and everything passes. And he says, you know, I, tomorrow I won't be here, but those cars on that street will still be driving back and forth. And that's life. And he's right. I think, you know, his, his idea was, you know, life goes on and, and everything continues. And, and that's the way that it is, you know, even in, even in mourning him, he was helpful that way. I constantly think of those things. Like, I don't think that, I don't think that he would look too kindly about me being sunk in a chair, you know, just coming to pieces about it. I think that, you know, his view would be like, you know, I mean, I certainly hope that, you know, that, that I missed and that you remember, but more importantly, I hope you remember the things that I've asked you to remember. More importantly, I, I hope that you're paying attention to the things I, I asked you to pay attention to. That's just, uh, that's just a, the kind of man that he was and and, all, and hopefully the uh, kind of father that I'll be able to be to my kids one doesn't fully realize the impression made upon you until someone like that is gone and and those are not things you're hearing audibly anymore but you hear them very clearly in your subconscious uh, all the time and so there is 
there's something to be said uh, about a life well lived, and and those people who have had the kind of struggles struggles that that I most certainly won't end up having in my life because uh, because of the circumstances and the many privileges that I've had and have. There's something to be said about that. He, you know, to be able to have gone through all of that and and still risen and and to not change who he was as a person throughout any of it, through through difficult times, through the success he was able to enjoy at the end of his life, just absolutely never changed. Uh, it's it's admirable in a way. He 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 formed himself at some point, and then that's who he was, and and he never changed. One time. I uh, I told him, you know, is there anything that he really wanted to do that, that he hadn't done? Did he was there somewhere in the world he wanted to see? Did he want a cruise? Is there something he wanted to buy? And he says, you know, uh, he said there might have been, but he says when you're a certain way for your entire life, even when you think maybe I should be different, maybe I should enjoy something differently. He says, you no longer have the capacity to do it. And so he says, I can't change now. Uh, and he was, he was a person that was that in touch with who he was and that strict about who he was. And he was, he was very strict with himself to the point where he, he, uh, he uh, uh, forbade himself from large belly laughs because he thought that those were, those were unnecessary to whatever the mission was at hand. So. He's a, you know, those are, those are my biggest takeaways uh, from him. Another one that always stays with me is the first time, the first time that he asked me if I wanted a cigar or the first time he asked me if I wanted a beer. Now, mind you, this is something that didn't happen till uh, a couple of years after I was already in the cigar business. And uh, I was almost, I want to say I was engaged the first time that my dad, I got to his house and, and he offered me a cigar and a beer. But it was uh, it was it was something that stays with you. You th- it's almost like a rite of passage. You feel like, okay, at least that part of the teaching is done. At least now he's also not trying to protect me from all else in the world. Uh, you know, uh, he, he to some degree now he sees you as his son who he can sit down and have a beer uh, and a cigar with. So that's another thing that that sticks in my mind. Uh, also the fact that uh, that everything everything that, that he built with the tremendous struggles that it took to build, he had no, no interest, but to leave it entirely to his children. Uh, he had no interest in anything for himself. His only, his only directions as, 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 as he became more frail was to make sure that, that it would all be, it would all be equally divided among his children. Uh, he's, which, which is also tremendously impressive to think that one would dedicate their entire life to building something and then have no interest in it for themselves is, is tremendously, tremendously generous. So it's a, it's a fantastic life uh, that he lived. Certainly for his family, it's not enough. You, you're, you know, if you would have told me 30 years ago, you know, your father will pass when he's 86 and you're in your mid-40s, I would have thought, well, what more could one ask for? I mean, that's, that's a long time and until you're there. And then you think, my goodness, you know, we, we would have liked this, at least this last Christmas with him, this last New Year's with him. He, uh, the, only, the only ritual he allowed himself, and, and none of us could ever quite understand it, but he did it. Every year on New Year's, he would break out a particular shirt and coat 
that he had worn in every new year for the last 45 years. Every year he would break it out. That's the only thing that he would allow himself outside of the ordinary, because if you know my father, uh, you would say, no, that's not something he would do, because he'd say, what's the use? You know, you don't. He would do that. New Year's had, uh, I guess for him, some sort of special meaning. And so he quietly did that every year. He wore it. And if you'd ask him about it, he'd happily tell you they're 45 years old uh, and they're perfectly preserved. And that's what he would do. And so uh, so New Year's, New Year's was particularly difficult for the family because that was the one time a year we, we kind of got to see him let his guard down in something. This was not a man that let his guard down. He just didn't. So. All right, this is Nick again. Just wanted to provide a bit of context. This next bit is Jose's response to my question about what, if anything, smokers could experience in an Oliva cigar that says something about his father and his approach to cigar making. Yeah, yeah, one clearly stands out. He had this mantra constantly. Uh, it was almost daily. He would, he would mention it to you. And that was that his tobaccos were well cured. He, just, he could not speak about a cigar. It didn't matter without pointing out to you that the reason they were good is because the tobaccos are well cured. This was, this was, you could get them to go into some detail about the process and about why they were well cured or how they were well cured. But more often than not, figuring that the people he was talking to knew what he was talking about and didn't need further explanation, he would, he would, uh, he would be smoking a cigar and he'd look at it and then he'd point to you and say, these are well-cured tobaccos. And, and anytime somebody would compliment a cigar, he would, he, would, he would tell them that it's because they're well-cured tobaccos. So, yeah, I would say that without a doubt, his mantra was well-cured tobacco. Finally, I asked Jose about how his father saw certain aspects of today's cigar culture. Specifically, what did a man with such simple tastes and so little interest in frills Think of the pomp and circumstance that sometimes comes with the enjoyment and consumption of cigars. Yeah, he he was he didn't comment too much on it. Not, mostly at the show, uh, he would uh, he he would make mention of his surprise of how large uh, as an industry it had all become. Uh, but because of the fact that he didn't he didn't really spend any time in these things, you know, you couldn't. You couldn't really talk to him about how amazing it is that somebody would buy an Ellie Hue, an Ellie Blue humidor for you know five thousand dollars, or that someone, you know, that there were expensive, terribly expensive Dupont lighters and things. Uh, he wouldn't have. You could have brought one to him, and 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 he, you know, he would have been polite with it and handed it back to you, and not, and not given that any more thought. His his thinking, and I think all uh, all tobacco men and and. Uh, and cigar people in, in the business as well, their measure and their thinking is always in, in you know, how many acres you're growing, how many quintales of tobacco you have, uh, how many cigars you're rolling. And, and, and obviously the public perception is, is, is the bragging rights that we have uh, amongst each other. But these, these old guys, uh, and, and, I, and I certainly hope that, that, that we can be more like that they didn't spend time talking about these things. I mean, when you saw, you know, Padron or Nestor or my dad or they would sit together, or Rolando Reyes, and they would talk tobacco. That's what they talked. This field is growing this, and this field yielded this many quintales per manzana. And that, that's, I, I think, 
I think that, you know, in, 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 in a world where fame is the, the, the goal, you know, these guys came from a place where fame was a side effect. You know, fame was, was, a, was a symptom of what they were doing. It was, it was, it, and, there wasn't, and there wasn't ever any real concern in that, although I will tell you, uh, you know, recognition mattered to them. I mean, you know, uh, when, when the Melania Cigar won Cigar of the Year and Cigar Snob, you know, that magazine could be seen at my dad's house. And he was not a man to keep magazines. So, you know, these things mattered. They certainly mattered to them. They weren't, I mean, these guys weren't, you know, made of steel, uh, but something near it. Next, you'll hear from David Perez. He heads ASP, which is one of the biggest growers of premium cigar tobacco there is. Um, well, I'd just like to, to mention that I have great memories of uh, Don Gilberto Oliva. Um, I met him for the first time in one of my trips to Honduras, and uh, he was actually working in a, in a factory and a warehousing facility in Morosali, and he would... Uh, actually live in the in the factory he had a little room on the second floor in the back and as always very gentlemanlike and very proper would always invite you to have a cup of coffee and you could spend uh, over an hour just discussing about life and about tobacco um in his little room in the back and with the little bit that he had at that time he was always willing to share it with whoever would come and, and visit the factory uh, at that time um we were processing tobacco there in that facility, and he would also store tobacco for us, for ASB. Um, he was a very humble, very honest person. Uh, never was anything missing or disappeared or anything like that. And um, I actually saw Don Gilberto, or Hibertico, as I used to call him at that time, um, I would say... 10 times a year from 1992 until 98 or 99 that I uh, then went on to travel more to Ecuador and other countries. But uh, at the beginning of my career, I spent a lot of time with, with Mr. Oliva and uh, and learned quite a bit from him, uh, from sorting regular tobacco to me and him learning together how to sort broadleaf tobacco. Um, it was just an amazing time, and uh, he's always an amazing person. I also recall, let's say, in the early 2000s, that um, he was already, you know, had established a company with uh, with his family, with his sons and his daughter. But he would always tell me, uh, David, no tienes alguna tripita que me puedas vender para yo poder defenderme. And what that means is that he would always, he loved the deal. You know, he loved to buy tobacco that we would grow, and, and he loved to be able to buy it and then, even if he only made a quarter on it, but he just loved the fact of making a deal and, you know, getting his his customer uh, the tobacco that they needed and, you know, and, and helping out in a certain way. You know, he always felt that he was helping us to be able to sell some of these fillers. Uh, so it was just, it's an amazing, amazing person that really tried to make the deal and tried to make his, as I always put it, his 25 cents because it wasn't really about how much money was in the deal, but it was just about making that deal, being able to buy something and sell it and make something even as little as it could be in between. But that was, that's what made him happy, uh, in my opinion. And I'll never forget, you know, that he, till the end, he would always say, David, no tiene algo que me pueda vender, you know, and 
you don't have something you can sell me. And I would say, Don Gilberto, es que estoy sobrevendido. I'm oversold. I'm, you know, but let me see what I can do and let me get you. And I, we would always try to, you know, help him or, you know, make him happy, you know, sell him a couple of bales. And, and he just loved that. And, and I must say, the, one of the most humble person that I met in the industry and a great person and a great person that knew tobacco and knew tobacco from the field to the processing aspect to the actual manufacturing of cigars. So he was a very well-rounded tobacco man and uh, well-respected. He always wanted to, to be a, a bit different, so he always wanted to have something in his blend that was different than other people. And even if he had to go try to grow it himself in Jalapa or in different parts of Nicaragua, so in a sense, he always wanted to be unique. And uh, and you know, between him and his, his sons, I mean, they were, they were great blending new blends, and you know, and he always liked he always tried to, to buy the best tobacco that he could from us, so that he could make the best cigars to supply the industry. Ernesto Pérez Carrillo founded EPC Cigars. They're the maker of E.P. Carrillo, Inch, and La Historia, among other brands. When he got his start in the business, the Olivas had a hand in supplying the tobacco for some of his first cigars. Well, you know, the thing about it, he was a very uh, quiet person. You know, I, I guess you could say, to a certain degree, an introvert, but when he was around friends, you know, he was very open, very smart person. Uh, I mean, you know, he had a mind that was, uh, was uh, you know, incredible, although he didn't really uh, project that at times. You know, when you have people coming to his home Saturdays and Sundays, you know, and Nicaragua sitting with him, and I'm talking about, you know, I don't want to name names, but I mean, you know, guys there that are, you know, known, you know, manufacturers and, and growers, you know, and, and kind of sit there and, and pick his brain. Uh, you know, one thing that I'll always, you know, be grateful to, uh, uh, you know, Gilberto Oliva and the kids is the fact that, you know, when I started in 2009, you know, realistically, I didn't have any tobacco. And they came in, they gave me, you know, they gave me a hand. They, you know, they, they, they showed me, you know, they had a binder there from Jalapa. It was five years old. And they said to me, you know, Nessa, if you want this, you know, we're saving it for something special. But, you know, you take it and start with your uh you know, with your lines, your, uh, you know, at that time we came out with the uh, uh, inaugural 2009. And that was basically a lot of the tobacco. Uh, as a matter of fact, even up to today, I, I would say one of my main, or probably my main, one of my main suppliers in Nicaragua is the, uh, the Oliva family. Uh, but, you know, what, what I admire about Gilberto, he had, you know, he was such a master at fermenting and aging tobacco. I mean, it, and, and again, you know, I buy tobaccos from other people, but he had a special way of doing it that was really very unique to that family. And, uh, you know, that was his, his work, you know, that was his, his legacy to, to grow tobacco and, 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 you know, be special, like I said before, especially at the fermenting aspect of it, at the, uh, you know, the aging, he was really, really, you know, uh, I would say he was top, the top dog there in Nicaragua. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say, you know, I'm very close to their, uh, to his kids. And I think they have that same, you know, drive that he had to do things, you know, as perfectly as possible. And again, you know, I think, you know, everybody, 
although he maybe he wasn't as well known as some other people, but I think he was, you know, a a, uh, a pillar in Nicaragua and in the uh, cigar and tobacco industry. Maria Jose Morales is a familiar face to many cigar smokers who have had a chance to visit Nicaragua and tour the Oliva factory, where, if you've met her, she was probably introduced to you as MJ. Aside from being the administrative engine of the company's Esteli operation, she had a close personal relationship with Gilberto Oliva. Gilbert Sr. Ed was Ed always will be an awesome man. He was a special person for everyone here at Taboliza in Nicaragua. He will say hi to everyone. He will walk to packaging and production, and he will say hi to everyone, and he'll do that every day. We always remember him as Don Gilberto. Um, a year ago, uh, we were watching the Super Bowl. I'm a Pat fan. And we were talking about, and he was saying, you know why I'm still working for my kids? He was 86 years old, and he was thinking about his kids. Everything he did was for his family. Family was everything for him. He went through a lot from Cuba to Nicaragua. He went through a lot. And what kept him going was his family, his kids. You can ask him about everything. He, he could forget everything, even the day. But he will never forget his grandkids' name. He could forget about me or anything, but not his grandkids' name. I'll miss him. We all do. If you talk to people at the factory, he'll say that he was the he was a hardworking man, an example for everyone. He used to say that um he hates trees that uh don't have fruits. He said that all trees should give something fruit for the people. Like a tree with no fruit is worthless. You have to give. To people and I think that's who he was a kind person but stubborn he likes stuff his way and don't try to convince him the other way but at the end he was a family man and he worried about his family and he always asked me about my parents how they're doing he was always concerned and I think that um, he we need to remember him as a hard-working man dedicated to his family and that he loved tobacco. He loved tobacco. He he knew everything about tobacco. He was amazing. You can sit with him and talk about tobacco. You can spend hours with him just talking about every, from tea to the tobacco. Sit with him and enjoy a cigar was an experience. He loved uh, Victoria. He hates Sonia beer. He loved Victoria. He loved wine. And he loved to have a nice conversation. I used to go to his house every Sunday and just spend the time with him, just watching the news, talking about Cuba. He loves Cuba and he misses Cuba. And about his family. Everything evolved around his family. Carlito Fuente knows the pain of losing a business and family patriarch. His father's death in 2016 left the family understandably shaken, but it also struck the whole cigar world. The Fuentes are known for the Dominican operation now, but Carlito used to spend a lot more time in Nicaragua, where Gilberto Olivas was a familiar and comforting face. 
Oliva, I knew him as Olivita. Back in the 70s, he used to live two houses down from where I used to stay. Uh, in the very beginning, when I was in Nicaragua, I was only like 19 years old. I used to stay at a hotel at Chico. But then later on, as we were more established, I used to stay at Angel Oliva from Tampa, Florida, from Oliva Tobacco Company, to stay in his house. And, uh, and uh, Hiberto Oliva, or Olivita, as everybody affectionately called him, I remember he used to come every evening. He used to get home about the same time that I did. And he always, always got out of his Jeep. And for and whenever he saw me, he would stop, he'd smile, and ask how I was doing. And always had words of encouragement. See, I, look, I looked at him back then as the sweetest man. And I don't mean that. I mean, but he was such, he, just, he was a real tobacco man. He was, uh, I knew him as a, as a tobacco grower, not as a manufacturer back then, because I think they just grew tobacco. But he was the nicest man and, and always had such a great respect and admiration for him. And through the years, as his children uh, entered the business, um, the respect only grew because I saw what he was able to pass on to the next generation. And very similar to, to the Padron family, his children were very successful. And they followed his, their father's footsteps of integrity, of ethics, of being loyal to their tradition, of hard work endless hard work and to building a brand that's one of the great brands in the world today and for that i take my hat off uh i have only good things to say and he just was such a gentleman and a nice man but he was a quiet man a man that didn't say much very similar to my father also all all his all, all his um uh, all his testimony and everything in his life is in his work and what he left behind which still lives so my, I have the highest respect for him, and I always consider him a friend and somebody who I looked up to with, with great respect. Eric Calvino is the publisher and editor-in-chief of Cigar Snub, but he's also a longtime friend of Jose Oliva's. And it was through the Oliva family that Eric really began to learn about cigars and tobacco. I met Hibet Oliva Sr. in the like mid to late 90s. And uh, at this point, I've... I've just gotten into cigars by way of Hibeto Oliva cigars. So that was a, it was a brand that they had launched and, and Jose Oliva being my friend, you know, when, when those cigars first came out, uh, we met up, we, you know, we all met up, uh, at another friend's house and, and we tried the cigars for the first time. Now I, I didn't know anything about cigars and, but I enjoyed it tremendously. And, and so, Cigars started to become part of our sort of weekly gatherings, right? Cigars were, were now included. And it was always Hibeto Oliva cigars, what we were smoking. It was a, it was a mild Connecticut shade wrapped cigar uh, on like Dominican and Nicaraguan fillers. And, but again, I, I, I don't know much at this point. I'm, I'm very much a novice. And, and so one day Jose tells me, hey, my dad, my dad's in town. Uh, why don't you come over so we can, you know, you can meet him and we can we can smoke a cigar with him in the backyard. I think it's going to be cool. All right. So I head over there and and sure enough, I, you know, here's this this gentleman, a very quiet man, uh, very humble. You know, I'm, I'm congratulating him as if I know what the hell I'm talking about, but congratulate him on, on this new brand. And he was very gracious 
as he always was uh, up until the end. I mean, this is a man that did not change one iota. Um, so Jose and I are, are we're talking about cigars and, and this and that and how the, you know, we I already started to, to try different, uh, different brands and, and, uh, and so we're talking about how, no, this cigar is a little stronger and that cigar is a little stronger. And this, this is in the mid nineties. And, uh, and so Hibeto looks over and he's like, you, you guys want to try it? I mean, you, you say you like something stronger. You want something stronger than, than what you've got there. They're like, yeah, of course. Yeah, bring it out. So he brings out these these cigars from his personal stash. And holy smokes. Uh, it was just not, I mean, it knocked me on my ass. And I'll never forget the, uh, <laughs> Jose's mom was in the kitchen. And you could see out to the terrace from the kitchen. And she's peering out through the kitchen window and she, she looks at me and the, the state that I was in, <laughs> it had to look, I must have looked like hell, uh, because she comes out with like a, a little bot. You remember the glass bottles of Coke? She comes out with one of those and, and a glass of ice and <laughs> she hooks me up with, uh, with Coke to sort of straighten me out. And so then, then we were able to talk about strong cigars and then he bet to, was able to expound his wisdom on that to us. Like, okay, now that we're talking about what a strong cigar can do, now let me tell you. And so that was that was really when I first met him. And, you know, w- one of the observations over the course of, of all these years that I've known him, uh, one of the observations is just how he did not change, right? No amount of success. And believe me, they had plenty of success, and they've had, and they continue to have, and God willing, they, they will go into the future with the success. But uh, they, uh, he, he didn't change no matter, no, matter, no matter how much their company grew, no matter how many accolades. Uh, he was the same exact guy. I'll tell you a quick story about how uh, as, as the business started to grow and, and now they're, they're in really good shape. And this is about... I, I think like the the mid 2000s so they were based the company at this point is based in Miami Lakes and all of the all of the Oliva uh, children are living in Miami Lakes so uh, so you've got Jose Carlos Hiberto Jr Jeannie and Maria and they've all they all live around uh, Miami Lakes so they uh, they wanted their parents to move from Hialeah to Miami Lakes, which is not a very long distance away. Highly as a, a more uh, humble neighborhood of Miami, and Miami Lakes is a is a, a much nicer neighborhood. So they want to, and they and it was closer to the the, the business, so that they and, and to all of them, so that they could all be together. So he was having no part of this. Uh, why, why do I need to move? Why? What is wrong with this house? And it's not so far away. Why can't you guys just drive over here? Uh, or I mean, why do I need to move? Like, no, dad, you know, the house is nicer. It's a, it's a better neighborhood. He's like, what's wrong with this neighborhood? You know, he was not into that change. He was not into the, never into the vanity of anything, never into any of that. Uh, and so the funny part is when, when he finds out that the house that they want to buy has a pool. And that was like the nail in the casket. Like, okay, I am not 
going to live in a house with a pool. Why do I need a pool? I have to maintain the thing. I'm going to be in Nicaragua. How am I going to maintain the pool from Nicaragua? This is insanity. Now what? Now I have to pay a guy to maintain the pool? I have no part of the pool. My grandkids are going to fall in the pool. I don't know if they know how to swim. I don't want a pool. <laughs> so, uh, so that was, that was comical. So that, uh, you know, Jose and Carlos and Hiberto and Gina, they had to, they had to fill in the pool. So they had to hire a company to come in and fill in the pool and pave over it. Hilarious, right? Like, uh, and so I had gone to see the house early. Like, you know, the Jose was excited that, that, uh, his parents are going to be right by the office and right by him and, and, uh, right by his house and, and his brothers and sisters. And I saw it with the pool house. It was a great house. And then I come back after the closing and we have a little get together there. And sure enough, the pool's filled in. <laughs> it's not... And uh, I was like, what happened to the pool? He's like, he, did, he didn't want any part of it. He wanted no part of the pool. But anyway, th- those are just, uh, it was such an interesting man and, uh, and, and a very intelligent man. And so people sometimes maybe would underestimate him because he was such a quiet guy but he was sharp as can be always always thinking business always calculating margins always working on these things in his head while talking to you it was uh he was an interesting man and uh and then one last story and i'll, I'll uh it's kind of like the images burned into my mind but uh with jose orlando padron passing and hibet oliva passing when both of those men passed, I, I couldn't help but, like, I remember this one moment that I happened to be walking behind them both as, uh, this is, as far as I know, the last sort of walk that they took together on the show floor at IPCPR. And uh, I'll never forget, like, the, you know, I, I wanted to stand there and, like, <laughs> listen in on the conversation. I wanted to walk along them so I could hear what they were talking about, but I can only imagine because they would look up and look at these banners and look at these boots and, and, uh, you know, these, these were guys that were not about that. And so I can only imagine the, the things that they were talking about. Like, look at this, look at what these kids have done. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, those are, those are two great men and, uh, and we're going to miss them. We're going to miss them dearly. So, so as, as I've said, uh, several times when, whenever talking about this if you want to remember those guys or, or maybe you never met them or and you'd like to get a little closer the thing to do is to smoke their cigars because that was their life's work and so you can kind of see the the differences in both men uh and how they how they thought about tobacco and how they uh, wanted you to experience it but then you can also see the, the similarities in that both of these guys were obviously very old school uh from the old tobacco school and, and tobacco was always fermented to the point that it needed to be fermented and aged to the point that it needed to be aged and i think that that kind of gets lost in today's world of of uh of these in-your-face cigars but but I, i'm i'm still a huge fan of both of those both of those brands and and uh particularly oliva right i mean it's uh it's the brand that that started me on this journey that I'm I'm still very much in love with. So so uh, so thanks to Hibet Oliva for uh, for putting me on this path. About a week before the Oliva family lost Hilberto Senior, 
the Padrón family lost its patriarch, José Orlando Padrón. The two men were competitors, but were also very close. Here's what José Orlando's son, Jorge Padrón, had to say about Gilberto Sr. Well, um, I actually met Gilberto um, many years ago. I mean, I was just out of college. I was probably uh, in my 20s, you know. I'm going to be 50 next year. So, uh, you know, I've known Gilberto. I knew him for a long time. Um, you know, when I first met him, I'll never forget this. Uh, my dad and him were friends. And um, my dad bought, like, all these little humidors that he had made that were in the shape of little barrels of wine. And I remember we took possession of, like, a thousand of these barrels. And I, and I unloaded them all into our office in Miami. And I kept, I, I used to call Gilberto El Barrilito. I go, oh, my God, here comes Barrilito. And I used to joke with Gilberto all the time, and he would laugh. I mean, you know, him and my father were, I mean, they were practically the same age, you know. So, you know, that generation of Cubans are very special individuals that have, you know, they're very unique in how they look at things and, you know, and how they, uh, you know, relate within their families. You know, I think that uh, I have nothing but great respect for the Oliva family and for all of his kids that have all worked you know, very hard, you know, to help their father and who, and, you know, who basically stayed by his side until the end. And that's, you know, an honorable thing. You know, it's obviously the way we were raised and obviously Gilberto did the same with his family. And, um, you know, I think that we were fortunate in the cigar industry to have people like Gilberto and my father and Mr. F and Carlos Fuente, who were people that, you know, knew a lot about tobacco and really never changed in the way that they were. They were the same from the day I met Gilberto to the day he died. I was, I, he would never change. He was always the same person. And that I think is what I admire the most of, of that generation of Cubans where it doesn't matter how successful they are. They, they're still the same people, humble and down to earth that you, that, that they are or that they were. All right, the final two voices you'll hear spoke to us in Spanish, so uh, our apologies to our non-Spanish-speaking listeners. After each recording, I'll offer a Cliff's Notes version of what was said. First, here's Manolín Busto. He was a longtime friend of Gilberto Oliva Sr.'s um, and was also a tobacco broker in Cuba. As he notes, he is a real old-timer, as is evidenced by the fact that he personally met Gilberto's grandfather, Melanio, after whom the Oliva Serie B Melanio is named. Yo tengo una anécdota muy importante porque yo 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 conocí, yo soy un viejo de verdad. Yo tengo 93. Entonces yo conocí a Melanio, el abuelo de Gilberto, el abuelo. Así que tú puedes calcular que soy uno de las pocas personas sobrevivientes en hoy día que conocieron a Melanio Oliva, que es el abuelo de Gilberto Gilberto 
tuvo ese amor por la industria, la industria tabacalera de Cuba. Melani Oliva, cuando era un muchacho, yo creo que todavía no tenía, no tenía los 18 años, se incorporó a las fuerzas eh, de aquella época, la guerra de la guerra de contra España, ¿no? La guerra de, de la manigua de Cuba. En los años, entonces, estuvo eh, tuvo en la guerra. Y, eh, creo que estuvo en la frontera de cuando Maceo eh, hizo la invasión de Oriente a Occidente, allá a, por Mauto. Pasaron por allá, para que se, se incorporó a la, a, la, a la lucha esa por la libertad de Cuba. Y entonces fue la guerra. Tuve la guerra, me dio la guerra. Y cuando se acabó la, la guerra, el gobierno que ocupó la la primera, el primer gobierno de Cuba, fueron a, estaban haciendo un censo para darle una, una pensión vitalicia a los veteranos de guerra que pelearon por la independencia de Cuba. Y cuando fueron a ver a Gilberto a Belario Oliva, Belario de una forma un poco eh, molesta, les dijo a estos señores, yo no, yo no fui a la marigua a, a pelear por ninguna pensión ni por ningún dinero. Yo fui a, a pelear por la libertad de mi patria. Así que yo no quiero pensión ni quiero nada. Déjeme tranquilo, que yo lo que quiero es sembrar tabaco. Y lo, y lo, lo botó a la casa, lo botó. Y nunca ocupó, nunca, nunca quiso obtener ningún beneficio por su aporte a la guerra. Eso es lo que yo más o menos tengo como una cosa muy 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 importante en la vida de Inverto. Así que esa es una, una de las causas que yo creo que es muy, muy importante, porque esa acción, eh, siempre Inverto hablaba mucho de eso, y él, él adoraba a su abuelo. Y él siempre tuvo el amparo de su abuelo, y él aprendió de niño, aprendió a la siembra de tabaco, de todo, todo lo que todo lo que se lo que se lo que se la, la dedicación a la siembra de cultivo de tabaco que es una cosa muy 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 importante desde que tú lo siembra hasta que llega a tu boca te das cuenta All right, so here's an abridged translation. Manolín says that Gilberto liked to tell the story of his grandfather Melanio's military service in the war for Cuba's independence from Spain. So after the war. Melania was visited by representatives of the island's first national government who were there to collect data and issue compensation to those who had fought for the, island's, uh, the island nation's independence. So Melania sends them away, Manolín says, insisting that he hadn't fought for money but rather for his homeland's freedom and telling the men to leave him be so that he could tend to his tobacco in peace. Last but not least, we'll hear from Nestor Plasencia of Plasencia Cigars. The Plasencias are cigar makers but also are among the most prolific and well-known growers of tobacco in Central America, where Gilberto Sr. worked for them for a long time before striking out on his own to create his own company with his family. Okay, bueno, mira, Gilberto Oliva Sr. lo conocemos hace aproximadamente como 50 años, ¿no? Lo conocimos originalmente a finales de la década del 60, ¿no? Una persona, él estaba asignado de gerente general de una finca en la zona de Jalapa, ¿no? Y nosotros estábamos en ese tiempo también ya empezando, ¿no? Nuestra actividad de acá en diciembre en Nicaragua, ¿no? Yo terminé eh, del estudio universitario y me llamen en, en el año 70, 69, ya empecé a, 
a, a, a ir a Jalapa, ¿no? Y de ahí, pues, tuve el placer de conocer a Gilberto, ¿no? Ahí estuvimos prácticamente en Jalapa, tanto él como nosotros, toda la década de finales del 70, hasta finales del 70, ¿no? Cuando viene aquí el problema de la revolución y todo y toda esa temática que existió en esa época, ¿no? Y de ahí salimos a Honduras. O sea, eh, todo, todo la, toda la década del 70, ¿no? De inicio del 70 hasta el 79, hasta finalizar la década, estuvimos ahí viendo a Gilberto, hablando con Gilberto, él, mi papá, y Gilberto, después ya, como se llama, nosotros ya involucraditos un poquito más con él en forma directa, de ahí salimos, como te comento, en, en julio del 79 salimos a, a, a Honduras, ahí seguimos, pues, como se llama nuestra re relación. Fueron muchos años de conocerlo, consideraba yo a Gilberto como una persona, como mi hermano mayor, por decirlo así, una persona al cual le teníamos un aprecio muy grande, muy especial, ¿no? Una persona sumamente trabajadora, sumamente honesta, ¿no? Recordamos una anécdota con que Gilberto en aquel tiempo había mala comunicación, no había comunicaciones como existen ahora, ¿no? Gilberto iba y llamaba a su casa una o dos veces a la semana, ¿no? A ver cómo estaba toda la muchachos, ¿no? Llamaba de, desde Honduras a Miami. Y Gilberto llamaba a cobrar a su casa, o sea, a cobrar colet, llamaba a colet porque no permitía que como era algo personal, ¿no?, de él, que fuese la empresa, que eso no hubiera tenido ningún problema ni nada por el estilo, es más como se llama, eso era muy normal, ¿no?, pero él ni eso permitía, o sea, él no permitía de que eh, una llamada que era algo personal de él fuera eh, cargado, como se llama, a un gasto de la empresa donde él trabajaba. Eso te habla por sí de solo ese pequeño detalle, ¿no? Como, como algo muy, muy importante del honrado, honrado que, era, que era Gilberto. De ahí, él después de Honduras estuvo, como se llama, por México y Filipinas, ¿no? Eh, siempre ahí fue ese periodito, pequeño periodo, no lo, no lo, no lo vimos, ¿no? Pero después volvió, regresó nuevamente e hicimos en forma conjunta una operacióncita allá por Panamá. Él compró una pequeña finca en Panamá y sembró también tabaco en Panamá. Nosotros comercializábamos ese tabaco. Y posteriormente ya vino a finales o a inicio de los 90, ¿no? Ya vino para, para, para acá, para Nicaragua, por un tiempito y de ahí se fue para Honduras con nosotros se puede decir por un trayecto de aproximadamente 12 años, ¿no? donde estuvo en una pequeña ciudad que se llama Moroselín, donde estuvo de gerente general de, de esa empresa por muchos años, hasta que ya regresó a Nicaragua ¿no? a ver sus siembras y todas las cosas de tabaco que le sembraba a él o cosechaba a él para la fábrica de, de sus hijos, ¿no? Eh, todas las semanas lo veíamos, teníamos eh, el placer de, de compartir con él, eh, ya que como te comento, fueron muchísimos años, ¿no? Eh, iba los sábados, él me esperaba los sábados, y los sábados íbamos y estábamos a tomarnos una tacita de café temprano, ¿no? Compartir 
y hablarse cómo estaba la actividad del tabaco, cómo estaba la cosecha, cómo estaba todas las cosas. Y realmente fue una gran, ha sido para nosotros una gran pérdida, ¿no? El saber que es algo que sucede y que y todo el mundo tenemos que recorrer ese camino, ¿no? Pero sí, sí, como se llama, sentimos la ausencia de Gilberto fuertemente, ya que como te dije anteriormente, lo consideramos como un hermano mayor. Again, a brief translation. Uh, Nestor says that Gilberto was like an older brother to him and remembers him for his staunch principles and unwavering commitment to them. He recalls that when Gilberto was working for the Plasencias and calling his home in Miami by phone to check on his kids, he always called collect, refusing to allow a personal phone call uh, to be billed to the company, even though that was standard practice and, and would have been perfectly acceptable to everyone involved. We at Cigar Snob understand that cigars are about celebration, and that is exactly why this and our last episode were so important to us. As I noted before, death is sobering, but the idea here is to bring you in on a celebration of the lives of men who left the cigar world so much. So thank you for joining us, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share this episode with anyone you think might want to learn a bit more about Gilberto Oliva Sr. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and also at cigarsnobmag.com slash podcast. Until next time, I'm Nick Jimenez, and this is the Cigar Snob Podcast.